Listener emails on episode 378 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for everyone who enjoys going out under the stars. So, Shane, we uh, should give a reminder for our Patreon calendar draw. Mm-hmm. So, um, you as editor of the RASC uh, calendar, Observer's Calendar, which lists all sorts of important, I don't know, I guess, information about observing, particularly like moon phases, uh, but other events is, are marked in the calendar as well. And we'll give out a few of those to uh, a random Patreon supporter. Uh, well, supporters, I guess. We'll, we'll have multiple calendars to give out. All you need to do to be entered into the draw is uh, be a Patreon supporter for us. Nice. I think that's it. Hey, that's it. That's yeah. it. Very simple. That we, we decided to try to, we always go with that rule, Shane, you made up one rule when we started <laughs> this and that's try to keep it simple. And whenever we start doing stuff and it doesn't seem simple, you always step in and say, this could be simpler. And I agree. All <laughs> right. We also have a Patreon supporter to thank. Uh, thanks to Michael, who is our, uh, who's a Patreon supporter. He's a, he's a returning Patreon supporter. So we appreciate that, Michael. And Shane, did you get any observing in this week? A little bit of visual, uh, no attempts really made to go out in the evening. Um, but uh, I forget which morning it was. I was going to work and it was exceptionally clear and was Venus ever bright. I, mm. I was quite astonished. Um, and you know what? Pretty much like the first time uh, I see Venus during whatever season, you know, it's favorable in. Sometimes it's morning, sometimes it's night. Uh, the first time I see it, I'm always, it always reminds me how bright it is. <laughs> and for mm -hmm. some reason, I kind of forget that in between times. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but that's it for at, me. I was looking at it as well. It is very bright. I, in fact, it's like so bright right now. I, I don't know what the magnitude is. I, I guess I should know that, but it's so bright that I really couldn't get a sharp focus on my binoculars just because it's just like so dazzling and mm -hmm. yeah, it's very, very bright. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I should look that up too. I'm not sure what phase it's in either, but I'm, I'm guessing that a, a fair amount of the planet is, uh, reflecting light right now to be so bright, but who knows? I guess I should check. Yeah. I had a look, uh, I got up yesterday morning, so you know, we're getting some work done on the slanty shanty out here. And uh, as part of that, you know, I get all kinds of fun phone calls. One of them was from my builder this week saying that he was successful in cutting a giant hole in the side of the cabin. Whoa. So, uh, and that I should come out and take a look. Hmm. And so I did, um, but I really hadn't planned to come out nor stay. I was, I was just going to run out for, and I just threw like a change of clothes in and, and a handful of uh, food. And I'm glad I did because that was two days ago now. And we ended up monkeying around with stuff Friday night and most of the day yesterday. So, uh, yeah, we're just trying to see what can be done for the place to to use it for as long as possible or if the weather warms up. So we think we've, we've got a few tweaks there that are going to enable me to uh, get a lot more astronomy in in. Uh, coming months and and hopefully in coming years hmm. well that's encouraging i know like a cabin is not like in a way like the most exciting astronomical accessory but uh let me tell you it's it's pretty nice to wake up i keep it nice and warm in here um, when i'm going to observe so i wake up and in sort of the main part of the cabin it's like 20 degrees and yesterday morning it was minus 13 outside with the wind chill and you know you bundle up and step outside and you're nice and warm and 
make an observation and come in for five or six minutes, warm back up and head out and do another one and come in and just roll back to bed. So it's pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. That's ideal really when you don't have, you know, you don't have to drive or anything. You just walk to the telescope and then walk back to bed. Yeah. And as you know, like I like my, one of my big things is observing in the morning hours and uh, you know, that, that is just X in my, just for me anyway, it's exponentially more difficult to kind of go and load the car and drive Mm -hmm. to an observing site. It just, that was always one of the uh, challenges for me in astronomy anyway, is that it just, it, it didn't sync up with other things. So by being out here, I'm able to do that and uh, yeah, managed to freeze up one of the pipes and, and it froze it up again last night because here this morning it is uh, minus 21, minus 22, uh, give or take with the, uh, with the wind chill. I think the core temperature is minus 14 or minus 15, but there's a little bit of a breeze. So I was out this morning plugging in a, a line heater and anyway yesterday morning though i i get out with the uh, 12 by 36 binoculars we're into that phase of the moon shane where it's pretty much near full and mm-hmm. i was working away on my plan to try to observe all the messies with my binoculars i had some success or i had had the success on the targets i went for but i'm starting to get doubtful i'm going to get them all <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Uh, just well, some of the fringe ones that are maybe slightly beyond the reach of the binos? I think like some of those Virgo ones are fainter mm-hmm. than these. Mm-hmm. So I think I was getting down close to, I think I can get to about 10th magnitude, but I think okay. there are, uh, I think there's a few messies that are just a hair fainter. I got to go back and do M76. That's been um, one of the toughest ones so far. I think I can get it. But uh, that one's pretty small. And then some. I, I think some of those ones in Virgo are going to be really tough. I'm up to 60. I've done 68 of the 110 okay. uh, s- since the start of September. So, But this uh, uh, this weekend, yesterday morning, I, I got up. I went out. The, the moon and Jupiter, there was like that moon and Jupiter pairing. Mm-hmm. It's in the calendar. Mm-hmm. So I put all these things in the calendar. So I knew to get up. But if you didn't, uh, you should become a Patreon supporter and your chance. Maybe you'll win a calendar or you should go and, and just order uh, the 2024 calendar from the RASC.ca web store. But uh, I got up and went out and had a look at that moon and Jupiter pairing. It was super cool because it was very low by the time I, I went out at uh, at 530. It was only maybe, I don't know, seven or eight degrees above my horizon. And then... Uh, could see the moon, of course, uh, not quite full, just uh, I think a couple days before full. And then I uh, went and uh, was looking at Jupiter right beside it and could see the moons uh, of Jupiter and our moon. And I could see the disk of Jupiter all sort of in the same field at the same time. It was pretty cool. I had a pretty hmm. good time. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And then what else did I get up to there? I took a look at... Uh, Orion's belt and like the sword area and you know uh, just kind of did a bit of a scan around M41 and then decided uh, once the moon went behind the hill to kind of get back down to my Messier project took a look at Messier 66 and Messier 65 part of the Leo trio up there in the constellation of Leo. So I'm not sure if you ever recall looking at those two or not, but they're sort of yeah. prominent in the spring sky. Yeah, I've looked at those quite a bit, um, even from my backyard here in the city. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and they actually don't look too bad even under light polluted skies, certainly better under a dark sky. 
Yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, what I noticed right away is that in, and this is in the binoculars, of course, is that, uh, M66 is much brighter out of all these ones that I looked at. It's, it's by far the brightest one. And it, uh, it has like a mottling, like you can see some like brighter spots in the core area, which right. uh, I, I was sort of surprised to see just in the binoculars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting too. And then M65 is uh, to the right or just over to the west a little bit. And it is uh, much fainter. It's for like around magnitude 9.3, I think, or something like that. Okay. And then... Uh, yeah. So just at, at first I thought it was like a star or a set of stars. And then kind of as the moon really made its way below the horizon, I could see that it was uh, not that it was the galaxy. It was, that was pretty tough. Mm -hmm. And then I moved over to uh, M105, M96 and M95 and uh, taking a look there, like M96 is just a hair brighter and easier to see than, uh, than M65 was. So it's kind of like a nice natural progression to go from uh, 66, 65 to 96, 95 and 105. Uh, 96 then I could see it, it was now like fully dark. And certainly when I went back and looked at 65 uh, again afterwards, it was much easier to see as well. So kind of getting to sort of that nine and a half magnitude uh, isn't so bad, but M95 I think is like 9.7 or something like that. And it was tough. I did. I did kind of see it, and I found M105 was a little bit easier to see. But uh, you kind of get all three of those in in the same field of view at the same time. But uh, that that was a, a tougher observation. But you know, I, I kept thinking, well, you know, if getting to nine three was a little bit of a challenge with some of the moon glow and uh, you know uh, other things going on that you know, might be able to get to 10th magnitude here, but boy, I, I don't know. I think some of these are going to start to get pretty tough pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, like if you're under, you know, a sky without the moon and maybe even you say grasslands, if that increases mm. the, the possibility of success. I think part of the challenge with some of these is, that I would probably, and Mike and I were chatting the other day about going down to grasslands uh, the first weekend of May. And mm -hmm. I think that these would still be high enough, that Virgo area, to get at that point in time. So that would probably be my shot if if I don't get them from here. I think from there, though, because that sky, I think, um, could be as, as much as a magnitude fainter than this sky. And this sky here is pretty dark, though, like magnitude... Six two six three, um, you know, and in in the summer when all the all the leaves are on the trees and stuff, you know, maybe even six four six five in the best nights, but down there, yeah, you know, you can get into the seventh magnitude pretty easily on a on a great night. So, mm -hmm. might might be my shot there. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, we'll see. Um, so let's see. Hit an email here from uh, from Tim. Maybe uh, maybe I'll give a read of uh of this one here shane sure. and, and then the next one is from uh jim did you check out the uh, pdf that jim sent uh yes yeah i did okay all right cool all right i'll read this one and maybe we'll get you to do the next one sure. uh email from tim uh, tim writes uh, hey chris and shane this is tim from st louis first off i want to wish you both happy 
Thanksgiving, which is American Thanksgiving. Uh, we had our Thanksgiving back in early October. And he goes on to say, we will be celebrating here in the States tomorrow, which is November 23rd. And I'm definitely thankful for your amazing podcast. Well, thanks so much, Tim. We appreciate that. He goes yeah. on to say, because... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Shane. No, 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 that's fine. He goes on to say, because of your podcast, I've begun my astro sketching journey, and I just completed my second sketch. Attached below, I chose M27, the dumbbell, for this round, and I think it turned out pretty good. So I put it in the notes there. I think it turned out really well. Yeah, for sure. He says, I've definitely been able to make out more detail while sketching and even just observing with a sketching mindset. This was done this past Saturday night with my X-T8 Dob, which is an 8-inch Dobsonian and Apertura 26mm Super Wide Anger SWAI piece uh, for a magnification of about 46x. I was under Bortle 5 Skies with above average scene transparency and setting crescent moon, which was at about a 35% illumination. Uh, I'm absolutely loving sketching at the moment. Thank you, Chris, for helping me to really get started yes no problem this is one of the things that we were doing and we appreciate your feedback tim because it's uh, exposing people to a lot of the different aspects of amateur astronomy not just talking about astrophysics which we seldom do <laughs> yeah yeah you know and if there's one thing that does intrigue me you know i've said multiple times i'll i'll probably never really get into sketching just it's not my thing but what does really intrigue me is, is that, you know, you really do have to sit down and observe an object and pretty much any sketcher that I've talked to or that we've had on the show, um, you know, always indicates that it really uh, kind of fine tunes your observing and, and mm -hmm. probably makes you a better observer over time. So that part of it is, is certainly appealing to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, everybody has their own sort of way of observing and it's not to, it's not to try to convince everybody to go and and do sketching uh that that's not what we're doing here mm -hmm. um what we're trying to do is just expose everybody to the broad reaches of amateur astronomy and that they're like some people may not even be aware that there's you know if you're just getting started and you're you know sort of uh, getting started on your own like many of us did then then you might not even be aware of uh of sort of some of these uh, sketching resources or or maybe that there's actually uh, people still doing this right it seems kind of a bit antiquated but uh lots of people are still doing it it's uh lots of fun and not as difficult as you might think and i i really thought his sketch was quite excellent sheen uh of mm -hmm. m27 i thought it looked a lot better than the one i did recently so yeah, yeah, it, yeah it was beautiful uh, very very nice rendition of that nebula yeah, his handwriting is is uh, much, much better than my handwriting, that's for sure. <laughs> Tim goes on to say, I also want to share with you guys that it seems there won't be a young astronomer emerging in my family. My niece has taken an interest in the movement and phases of the moon. And grandma texted me the other day with a super urgent question from my niece asking what the really bright star was in the east these days and apparently she was beyond excited to learn that that was jupiter so that's pretty cool <laughs> she also discovered venus in the morning sky with my help and after taking uh, talking to her mom uh, a little we decided i'm going to get her a little pair of uh, binoculars for christmas she is so excited about all the cool stuff in the sky here's a link to the ones i'm looking at and he picked out a pair of uh, small fairly lightweight seven by 35 uh Celestron up close binoculars for her. I think that's a pretty good choice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really good for uh, a first pair of binos that will last a long time. 
Yeah. And he goes on to say, I loved your recent podcast with Cindy and appreciate the inclusion of some of our previous email exchanges. It made my day uh, when that episode was released. So yeah, we're always happy to include people's uh, emails into us. Uh, it's impossible to include them all, but we do kind of pick out a, a few that uh, that we think will work with the shows. I'm mm -hmm. trying to find a large... Oh, also the David Dunlap uh, Observatory Tour Center. Really cool. So I'm trying to find large observatories in my area. Keep up the good work. And as always, clear skies. Thanks, Tim. Very cool. Yeah. Um, should I move on to Jim's mm. email? Go for it. Sure. Um, so Jim sent an email and, as you mentioned earlier, uh, a PDF. And uh, I'll, I'll read the email here first. So uh, Jim says, it is Thanksgiving in the United States. And as I listened to the podcast this morning comparing mounts, I was struck by the passion both of you bring to your sessions and realized that, is, that it is one of the reasons I listen every Monday and Thursday mornings. Uh, sharing your insights on gear, observational experience, uh, and solutions, as well as the many guests you've featured have been useful, entertaining, and appreciated. Uh, my wife has continued her tradition of printing a photo book each year featuring some of my favorite images. And I was struck by how many of the sketches Chris mentioned are targets uh, that I've focused on, pun intended. Uh, so Thor's helmet, the veil, helix, rosette, cocoon, and cone nebulas are all ones I've included in the book. The PDF is attached, uh, though the size may create transmission issues. In any case, thanks again for sharing your passion, Jim. And Chris, that book was pretty incredible. Um, like it's so well done. I, I think it's phenomenal. Uh, yeah. And I really like this. I, I think Jim has sent us the, uh, in fact, I know he has, he sent us like the previous versions of this. I remember the first time I got it, I'm like, what is this attachment? Like, cause usually people send like a photo or something into this PDF. And then I was like, oh, it's like a real thing. And so what he does is he has an image and then beside the image, he has a description and things are kind of like, it's well laid out. Like it's, they've used like a design tool and it's really cool. I like the only thing with like it, I feel like this would be like such a cool handout to have. Like if if you were doing like public outreach somewhere, I it's just like such a cool thing. I've never seen something like that done before, where you have like all these different um, objects sort of from throughout the year, and then paired with information about the the object and uh, and that kind of stuff. It's just it looks very beautiful, and there's like. A beautiful background and you know they've kind of you know spent a lot of time and attention putting these uh these together it's uh yeah it's pretty cool but yeah it makes me like i meant to ask like what he's doing with it exactly it seems like it should be shared to a broader audience somehow but it's pretty cool anyway yeah it almost seems sort of like in the uh spirit of scrapbooking where you capture you know memories or or kind oh, of yeah. momentous events and I just wonder if it's sort of a year in review of, you know, what, what he was into for yeah. astronomy. I'm not think, sure. Yeah. I think that's kind of what it is. Yeah. But I hadn't thought about sort of that scrapbook uh, connection. I like that idea. Like the astronomical scrapbook of 2023. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's yeah. Really it'd be cool. neat to have a, a bookshelf of, you know, each year of, you know, maybe observing lists or, or key objects that either you observed or imaged or sketched throughout the year. Um, I think it would be neat to just pull those off the shelf occasionally and kind of walk down memory lane about what, what you were doing in 2023 for astronomy. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm almost like at that point where like in my observing sketchbook, the one that I have now, I've 
you know, if I'd started this back in January of last year, I'd almost be at like the perfect cadence. I think it's 80 or 90 pages. Um, and then I use both sides of the pages, but I'm at almost the point where if I had thought it through and done it and been a little bit more diligent, I would have like sort of perfectly filled that with 180 sketches or something like that would have been mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah, for so, sure. But uh, yeah, I've done like myself for sketching this fall. I think I'm at, yeah, I think I'm getting close, like 80. So yeah, maybe a little more because I did 70, 68 Messiers plus a few other Messiers and then um, through Microscope, same Messiers, I mean, and then more Messiers and then a bunch of weird stuff like Thor's helmet. Cool. All right. Uh, going on, we had an email here from Peter um, and Peter was writing about uh, the mounts. I kind of got the feeling maybe we misspoke Shane. So I'll just read this and then, yeah, I think he gives some good practical advice. So maybe I'll get the context. So Peter is a listener and Peter has a permanent um, pier in his backyard for his mount and telescope. So you can just go out and put it on. I think he moved recently and then um, he's transitioned that over to the new location. And it's really like a very nice and ideal setup, not an observatory, but like a really nice, beautiful, permanent spot in his yard using one of the next dome uh, piers and then uh, some custom pier adapters. So Peter says, uh, I've struggled with understanding the question of leveling the tripod or mount pillar for an EQ mount with respect to tracking and guiding. I've come to the conclusion it will not make a difference if you have an accurate polar alignment. Of course, leveling the tripod and having a balanced rig are both sensible things and essential for safety. If an EQ mount is accurately polar aligned, then the RA axis is pointed at the pole and should stay that way irrespective of how top of the tripod is oriented with respect to the ground if the rig is stable. The only motions of the mount are the rotations of both the RA and deck axes. So tracking and guiding cannot depend upon the alignment of the tripod. Chris, you mentioned possible changes in leveling of your mount pillar in your observatory as the footing settles into the ground. I wonder if you had an arrangement like the one, and he includes like a photo where he has like, uh, I think like six or eight, uh, they look like, I'm gonna say like half inch bolts coming up to a plate that you can change the leveling on. Uh, the top plate is leveled by adjusting the bolts the ones that come with the pillar are much shorter than what I have installed here, but this improves the axis uh, and the mounting is still very rigid. Clear skies, Peter. Thanks for that, Peter. So, yes. So regarding the EQ mount, Shane, I feel like you're the EQ mount expert because you actually own one and I do not. <laughs> I, expert, what are your thoughts there? You, use, use expert loosely there. Well, you're, expert, one. <laughs> you're the expert between us. Okay, like, that's right. Like my that's wife right. and I always say, you know, whoever cooks dinner is, you're the best cook in the house, right? Kind of thing, right? Because <laughs> yeah. that's all that matters, right? Nobody yeah, else yeah. is here cooking dinner. Nobody else is here doing a podcast. So you go. Yeah, so irrespective so i think he's saying that um it doesn't matter if it's level if it's or not level yeah yeah like uh, other than you don't the... want it to collapse which yeah. of course yeah 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 I, I think that that makes sense like i i think he's probably right um i don't know i i i'm not experienced uh or i i haven't really used my eq uh mount all that much and certainly 
uh, even less uh, have I used it in a tracking fashion, like actually using the motors to track. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I guess it makes sense. If you're aligned to the pole and you got that axis correct, everything else should be kind of aligned. Now, I wonder though, if that polar alignment sort of in a way accomplishes like a, a leveling of the tripod because i don't know i'm just thinking out loud here <laughs> yeah i gotcha i i think there's two things he, he mentioned um if if it's you know the safety concern and i think yeah there would be a safety concern if it was really far out but my, see my thinking would be that if the if the mount isn't level just because of you know even though you have like your counterweight and your telescope and and you make sure that they're sort of perfectly balanced see when that force is actually coming down on the top of your whatever it is tripod or pier um just the way that the gears are going to sit i think depending on the mount right like if you mm -hmm. sort of had like if you had your telescope very undermounted or sorry if you had your telescope very overmounted um like me like i've seen people put like some of those paramount mounts and they'll put like a 60 millimeter telescope on then i'm like yeah sort of that would be fine but if you're putting like uh i don't know like a 10 inch uh reflector on a you know vixen super polaris or something like that it might like mesh the gears off like it might not like it might tend to drift or something like that so you'd have to I think sort of theoretically it's correct. I'm just not, I wonder about the practicality probably on a individual basis. Like it could, uh, it could vary. Then he talks about the orientation and yeah, the orientation for sure, as long as it's polar aligned and blah, 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 that should work. He asked me though, Shane, about the leveling of my, my mount pillar. So I have, I have a pier and this is like, this is of our own design. And by that, it's mostly of the design by my builder or actually Hopefully he doesn't drop by while we're doing the podcast, but he is supposed to drop by later, although it is exceptionally cold this morning. So who knows if we'll, I'm hoping we can do this, but regardless, we're going to try putting the, the mount up in there. Um, we've got a post in the ground. It's a giant wooden post that's six by six. It's in the ground four feet and comes up about 40 inches into the observatory. And then we've sandwiched it together with some, uh, some other boards and what I had, what I had made for this is a plate, kind of like uh, Peter's plates, although this one might be a little bit rougher. And that plate is sitting directly on the pier top. And then we have the pier extension, which sits above that. And he asked, like, if I have a way to um, change and modify that with like a set of screws. And my my builder, he's not an astronomer, but when he he's one of those people that can really see things working out in his in his head. I can just explain something and he can understand it in a different way. And it's really cool because he's not polluted with all of the astronomy stuff, although he'll spend time Googling stuff and look like he's actually learned a fair bit about telescopes and astronomy, even though he's never even looked through a telescope yet, strangely enough. But what he designed, Shane, is that in on our plate that's that's sitting right on top of the mount, we've got four screw holes in the corner. And we also have uh, a series of bolts that go around. And what we can do is we can back off some of the bolts and we can shim it very easily. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And so that's how we would level it. Now, here here's the thing is that the way that he operates is he he's a bit of a perfectionist, which is really great when you're building an observatory because it's built to this um, very, like you've seen it, it's very well built. Mm-hmm. And um, so even though we were concerned that hill does have a significant amount of motion on it, like it's actually like a red label in Saskatchewan, they have like these different uh, ground shifting labels. But the way that he put the pier in and the way that he attached it to a giant boulder that was just fortuitously right in the middle of the hole that he bored into the side of the hill, um, it moved. Like it hasn't even moved like a fraction of a millimeter considering we had all kinds of rain. It's the ground is now it's been freezing and thawing. Different things have been happening. Um, that, that pillar has not moved, uh, you know, even, a like a noticeable, like we can't see it on like a level, like when we put a level on, whether it's a phone or, or a bubble level or anything, it's, it's still completely hundred percent level. So I'm actually, I have a lot of faith in him. I think that it probably um, is unlikely to move, or if it does, it's not going to move very much and probably will tend to move back. But that rock that we put it on, I don't think that rock is going anywhere. So I think we're, we're going to be okay there. Right on. My concern is just the wood. There's a little bit of vibration when I give the the pillar a good whack. And it's just a matter of whether or not that, uh, how much that's going to play into the vibration. Um, I did, I did see another individual who did this and was mounting big, really big scopes. And I'm mounting more in the range of medium size scopes. And I've seen people put medium size scopes on similar setups and they work. Uh, but I think we're, we might be a little bit tall is the only thing because we have 18 inches between the bottom of the observatory and where the pier comes through. So what we're planning to do, if there is um, too much vibration, I think there probably is, is to put um, steel angle iron uh, around the uh, around the wood. That's the plan anyway. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess, you know, as you continue the journey, um, you, you may, you might run into some weird things that pop up that I guess you have to problem solve. Hopefully the, the vibration, you know, is, is minimal once you get everything mounted up. And as long as you're not, you know, boxing your, uh, your, your peer, hopefully it's, it's not too bad. Well, yeah, that's right. Like I was showing Mike one day and he's like, yeah, but you'd never hit your peer. Like, like don't do that. That's not the test. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and then the other thing is, is so I, I set up my wooden tripod and I gave it the same kind of hit. And I mean, you know, it, the whole thing just moves like two or three inches, right? Like, you know, sure. It doesn't really vibrate, but once you put a telescope on it and it has compression under weight, then it doesn't do that. So I'm kind of hoping that once we put the mount up there today and then give it uh, a, a whack. I'm, I'm actually thinking once a 35 pound mount is sitting on top of the post that it's going to, uh, provide that, that level of compression. But if it doesn't, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different things we can do. And like, originally I wanted a cement pillar. I, I wanted to do like cement blocks, I think. And I have the blocks, um, but my, my builder had some other ideas and he made a good argument for this. People may be saying, well, why would you do a wooden post like that. And there's a really good reason to do this here, which might not be, you know, in your location or somewhere else. 
um, but that is Shane, and, and you're familiar with, it, with this, is that there's already about six or eight giant wooden posts exactly like this in the hill um, that haven't moved in the past eight years. Okay. And so we know that uh, that this type of post uh, is and put in in a certain way, like, and we talked to the people who did the other posts, and we put this one in the same way. So that's why we're fairly certain it's not going to move that you, you dig until you hit a rock, you, you attach it to the rock, you make sure it's level, you fill it with five bags of cement and, uh, you know, skirt over the top with some soil and that's not going to move. Then see what you got and then work around that because that's what other people have done here. And it's worked beautifully as far as keeping a post straight, you put cement in. And one of the challenges with that is you've got a lot more, weight all of a sudden and uh, we just don't know what a cement post is going to do on that hill because nobody's ever done it before right so mm -hmm. we're trying to trying to be consistent all right alejandra wrote uh hi chris and shane i hope all is well with you too alejandra here from south florida i always like getting the emails from alejandro in south florida he he emails us fairly uh frequently and uh, it's nice to see what it's like somewhere warm right now, Shane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he goes on to say, uh, I wanted to reach out, share a few recent images. So he sent us some photos of uh, the moon and Saturn conjunction from uh, back on Tuesday, October 24th. He says the moon was done with my phone. Saturn was done with a DSLR. And both images were uh, made up in his 10-inch Dobsonian. Once the images were done, I made a composite in GIMP, which is uh, my favorite tool of choice, which is the graphical image manipulating program, uh, freeware. And he says, note, I just upgraded the secondary screws to the Bob's knobs on the scope, and now it's in great shape. Collimation is a breeze. Thanks, Alejandro. Thank you, Alejandro. Thanks for sending that. Yeah, yeah, that was really good. Uh, should I take the next one here from Simon? Sure, yeah, Simon, yeah. So, hi, Chris and Shane. I'm glad you've got out recently to do some observing. It's a bit hit and miss here in the UK at the moment. We seem to be having storms rolling in every fortnight, and so clear nights are few and far between. Oh, anyway, one of my little projects this winter is to see if there is somewhere better to observe than my back garden on the outskirts of London. I've been looking at the numerous sky maps that are all slightly different and of various age, but I'm having difficulty reconciling the expected Bortle number with what I can actually see from the ground looking up. It occurred to me that local conditions like house lights, street lights, and humidity will affect the observer's perception of backscattered light, and this might be uh, this might be different to the upwards shining light uh, from the Earth that is observed from space and used for some of the surveys. I think that's a really good uh, comment there, Chris. I'm not sure what mm -hmm. your thoughts are, but um, you know, there's all kinds of data out there to tell you about dark sky sites. You know, there's mm -hmm. the light pollution maps, there's uh, SQM ratings and on and on and on. But until you just go and, you know, see it with your own eyes at night, it's really hard to know for sure. Because, you know, the light pollution map may identify a location as, you know, something favorable or, or dark. And you may go to that location and find out there's maybe a street light or a bright light to the south or to the east or somewhere where you may want to observe, which kind of spoils the location. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't take much. Um, this location I'm at right now is, is a good example of things working out for the better. 
I, I had observed near here a few times and noticed that it was particularly dark considering how close it was to the city because there's not like street lights on all the uh, secondary roads here. And that's, that's where I'm at. And uh, fortunately my neighbors all either have, have enjoy do enjoy stargazing or have enjoyed stargazing and, um, or like to sit out and look at the stars while they're having a campfire. So they, they don't have as many or uh, any lights they do have are fully shielded. So uh, it works out pretty good here or, or they've been kind enough to either turn them off or point them away from me. So mm-hmm. I should mention that as, as well. I, there, there was one light that was annoying this spring and I kind of went over and said, you know, Hey, how's it going? And how oh, good are you? Good, good. I had this kind of, and I'm like, you know, that light keeps coming on. <laughs> like, Oh, we'll turn it off. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's all, it's all good. It's all good. So, so there's that as well. Right. Because yep. that light wasn't even that bright. It was like a 90 watt bulb or something like that. It was just in a really bad spot. Doesn't mm-hmm. take much, right? No, it doesn't. And, you know, sometimes it's as simple as having a conversation with somebody as you did. And sometimes too, you can even uh, contact, say the local, um, municipality or or whoever owns the streetlights and sometimes there's shielding options that are available too to um you know uh, control some of the light uh kind of overreach um that might spoil an observing location so there there are options to sometimes improve local light pollution yeah um, but uh, I'll go on here. Uh, Simon wrote uh, a lot more. So he said, I decided to do my own survey of likely spots using my camera exposure from the ground, looking up and not bothering about luminance, illuminance and portal numbers. I just need to know if site A is better than site B or my garden. Uh, it seemed to me that having driven the car for a while with headlights and looking up, trying to make a subjective assessment might not be that reliable, hence the use of the camera. After some experimentation, I settled on a simple process that required me to set my camera on a tripod at chest, uh, in brackets, observing height, uh, pointing straight up with a 35 millimeter lens. Uh, my camera is APS-C format, so that gives me about a 25 by 35 degree field of view. Uh, my other settings were ISO 800 F stop of two and exposure of 30 seconds. As long as I kept all of the settings the same, I could compare the results directly by, uh, tiling them in a photo editor. Mm-hmm. I love that idea. Uh, yeah, so he says, cool. yeah, he attached a, a three by three picture showing the results so far, uh, on the left column are the tiles from the garden. Uh, the lower left is at 2 a.m. after our street lights have been turned off from 1 a.m. till 5 a.m., which is pretty cool. Uh, the sky is significantly darker that the two tiles above that are earlier in the evening. Um, the center column shows, or sorry, the center column two tiles are from a playing field site that is about 20 minutes away and is modestly better than the garden. The right column two tiles are from another site that is about 45 minutes away and significantly better than either. Uh, although the practice is not so convenient to get to. Uh, This is still a work in progress. And although there are other factors to consider like travel, travel convenience, parking, personal safety, and view of the horizon, it has been useful in assisting with some decisions about where and when to observe. Uh, I thought I would share this as a simple way of assessing real observed sky quality seen from the ground if anyone is looking for sites uh, without having to scrutinize the maps or try to determine which stars they can or cannot see best regards, Simon. Uh, so I love that. I love this approach. And Chris, like, 
I remember multiple times you and I would do daytime trips to potential yeah. observing sites uh, just to see what it looked like in the daytime. You know, was there any, you know, obstructions to our views? Were there any uh, like significant safety issues, like a big hole in the ground that you may not see at night, you know? Um, and then we would often then return in the evening uh, just to see, you know, how dark it really was. And I think there were some sites that, you know, with the pre-survey were maybe crossed off the list while other sites, you know, did turn into locations uh, where we observed. I, uh, I, I too think Simon did a great job. And when I, but when I wrote him back and I hope I didn't, um, not offend him, but kind of, you know, go in a wrong direction is that I was so distracted by the fact that his streetlights turn off mm -hmm. in the, in sort of at a reasonable time at 1am. And I, I've gone ahead, sorry, Shane, I forgot to put the uh, image in the notes. I've dropped it in there now. I don't know if you have to refresh or anything, but in looking at the images, like he has, um, images showing what it's like at home another site and then like this this other site but at his home with the lights off that's kind of like the uh second uh darkest place mm -hmm. it, now all things being equal as you choose the darkest place but as as you and i both know shane not all things are equal personally for me i would almost just do what i can in the yard and mm -hmm. uh and then for, you know, if you're working on certain projects is just try to like arrange your schedule and get up at night and just observe then. I mean, I, I find that easy to do. So that's, that's sort of my opinion, just because the convenience of observing at home is, uh, is just so much better. And that's, mm -hmm. you're going to have like, like, that's just the best time to observe anyway. And even though it might not be ideal for a whole host of reasons, you kind of live where you live and you have to work with what you got. And I think like if my lights turned off like that, wow, like my yard can actually be decently dark when during the pandemic for, you know, great, you know, chance luck, um, three of the streetlights directly behind my place burned out. One of them in the front of my place burned out. And then they were doing some work in the nearby buildings that do have some lights and they were all off for, you know, uh, 2020 and part of 2021 summers. And I was just like, this is like unbelievably fantastic. Literally when I bought my dark sky site where my cabin is the next week they went in and, and put the lights back in. So I was, I really did a lot of observing in my yard during the pandemic, as you'll recall. And that's why. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. Though, and part of it too is, is you can even vary your observing lists. Um, like I have lists for my backyard, uh, which is primarily double stars. Yeah. Um, and then when I go to darker skies is when I look at other objects like, mm -hmm. um, Omira's, uh, hidden treasures list or yeah. whatever it might be. So that's another way to approach it too. Yeah. I just was so distracted by, I think he did this great job and I felt bad because I was so distracted by the fact that wherever he lives have uh, a reasonably high level of intelligence and they actually shut the lights off at night, um, which would make a whole heck of a lot of sense if more places did that. Uh, I haven't heard of that happening in as many places as not. So I was just so distracted by that. I apologize, Simon. Um, and I would, yeah, I would just be like, because your site is pretty close to that other site. So then, you know, you can have a multi-prong approach like Shane was saying is, have your sort of at home and away games. And then like, if there is something that you want to see that is in the morning or evening sky, do it that way. Like, but personally, like for me, I, I would be very inclined to 
think about like a small backyard observatory if you have the space or a pier like Peter has that we chatted about before. Uh, like that made me really excited for observing, for you observing at your home because you, you could, yeah, you could do a lot there. I think I would maximize that. Yeah, for sure. Gary wrote, uh, oh, and Gary is a Patreon supporter. He is the person that won a special prize recently, Shane. Okay. So he goes on to say, this is like, this is great. It, you know, it's really nice. I got to say, whenever people do get a prize, uh, you know, whether we've given the Patreon supporters or or not, um, people often do write us. And it's really cool to kind of hear like what happens. So uh, Gary's on it, right? Hello, Chris. I wanted to thank you both. For Alistair Ling's monocular telescope. Uh, I left for the East Coast in early October and it was not here but was delivered when I get home in late October. It's fun and very transportable. It's a fun and very transportable piece of gear. I know most people send you photos of the sky but here's one that's from another universe. It is a shot from the rooftop gardens of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City and looks down over Central Park. That image is spectacular. Uh, you can see like the tree. It's just, it's just a shot. Like a, it's just, it looks like New York is in a sea of trees. Like, like us, like how sometimes you see like a sea of clouds because they're all sort of different varying heights. I've never seen a shot of New York like that before. That was pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. Uh, what's otherworldly about the shot is there was a proliferation of pencil thin high rises in New York City for those ultra rich, and uh, and then of these. Uh, of the three high rises close by, uh, you can purchase a full floor uh, for sixty-six million dollars U.S. And maybe some of those uh, people could be Patreon supporters. You suggest that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I to say, I'll include a couple more shots. So he included this beautiful shot of M31 that was spectacular, and then he included a picture of his uh, his equipment. He goes on to say, I "Decided to learn about astrophotography about a year ago." And this is the first decent photo I have produced. Yeah, it's a very decent photo. I started with a mirrorless camera, lens, and star tracker. And before then, I was taking uh, wide-field Milky Way shots, Milky Way photographs. It took a full year to learn how to program and operate the rig. In the second photo, I built it over time so I could learn each component before moving on to the next. That's pretty smart, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. Agreed, I yeah. Think that's a pretty smart approach, sort of the the part whole approach philosophy. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good way to kind of ramp up. Uh, I think if I just bought the whole system, I would have gotten frustrated and given up. I do hear that from time to time. I think that you've hit on something here, um, Gary, uh, and that is that, and we see that as well, Shane. Sometimes because. You know, when I started, I feel like I was fortunate now in retrospect that I just didn't have any money when I started astronomy. And so I could only get uh, somebody gave me a book and then I could and, and binoculars and then I could only buy like one thing every year, maybe like a tripod to stabilize them and, you know, another book and red flashlight and, you know, finally charts and then save up for a year or two and really learn the sky while I saved up and then buy a telescope. And I sort of ended up doing something similar in my astronomy journey. And, uh, you know, we always want to have that instant gratification, I suppose, or many people do, I guess I don't, but, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty good. He goes on to say baby steps. I also think I really, uh, understood the final cost of the rig, uh, 
I would have had a second thought about it too. I <laughs> uh, hope this was entertaining. Thank you again for the scope. I will also send Alistair a note via snail mail. Injury podcast very much. Best, Gary. Thanks so much, Gary. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Do, do appreciate it and uh, really appreciate all of the emails that we get. It's always fun to read them. Anything to add to uh, this episode, Jane? No, that is all, Chris. I really, lo- I really enjoy getting the emails from people. I felt bad for some reason. I pe- people send us these really beautiful long emails, and I sit down and I read them, and then sometimes I something comes up. Like I was, I was telling uh, you, Shane, before we started this recording, um, one of my coworkers who typically does on call is in Nepal mm-hmm. and uh, visiting with his family. And, and so I'm doing some of the on call while he's in Nepal. And, uh, because of that, um, you know, like right now, like even while we're doing the podcast, I I'm on call here and have been doing some other duties at work. And, uh, I think I'm just like a little bit distracted for some reason. I keep reading these emails and then not replying. So I keep writing, I'm sorry, I did read your email like a week ago, but now I'm replying. So my apologies if you sent an email and we were slow at replying. Including message, just a reminder for a Patreon calendar draw. All you need to do is become a Patreon supporter to be placed in our draw. Thanks to everybody for listening and sending in your emails. We do enjoy reading them. Uh, we also enjoy receiving your show ideas, observations, and questions at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.